This morning we're in Luke chapter 18, verses 31 through 34. This is what God's word says. And taking the twelve, he, that is Jesus, said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them and they did not grasp what was said. Amen. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Father, we ask now that you would help us to understand and grasp the weight of glory that is in your holy word, testifying to us of Jesus Christ, our Lord, crucified for us. Would you show us Christ, show us his glory through the preaching of your word, empower it by your spirit and enable us to receive by faith. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the key themes in Luke's gospel record is Jesus very consciously making his way to his final destination of Jerusalem. Now, of course, the fact of it is not unique to Luke's gospel. I mean, all four gospel writers testify to the same thing because that's exactly what happened. They recorded historical fact that after three years of public ministry, that Jesus eventually went to Jerusalem where he would be tried by Gentile Roman soldiers and then headed to the cross. But Luke, of the four, is very intentional in getting us to feel the crescendo of every step of Jesus' feet marching head-on to that finish line of the cross that awaited him in Jerusalem. And that's why, if you remember, back in chapter 9, verse 51, Luke, only Luke mentions this. He says that when the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. That there was a moment where Jesus was determined to go there. And from that point, if you recall, Luke would periodically give his readers these reminders, the most recent one being in chapter 17, verse 11, that as Jesus was doing all sorts of things with a busy schedule, traveling through all kinds of towns and villages, he was nonetheless ultimately on his way to Jerusalem. That despite all the various instances of teaching and working of miracles, he never forgot about the end goal, which was at the forefront of his mind and heart. That is to go to Jerusalem. And now here in chapter 18, we see Jesus at the tail end of his journey as he is drawing very near to the city of Jerusalem. Because once he passes through Jericho in chapter 19, it's in verse 28 of chapter 19, probably just the next page over in your Bible, that Jesus will arrive and make his triumphal entry into Jerusalem and thus commence the Passion Week, at the end of which he will be crucified, dead, and buried. And do you see how Luke is giving constant movement to get his readers to anticipate Jesus coming to Jerusalem? He really wants us to know how central is the Passion of Christ in Jerusalem. Why? 
Well, because simply put, the cross is the very center of God's glory revealed to man. That is to say, if you want to know who God is, who is this God who created you? What is he like? There is nowhere better to look than the cross. Because there at the cross, God's innermost heart is most revealed. His nature and glory best understood in the display of Christ suffering unto death for sinners. The cross is where God wants the world to look, to understand Him, to know Him, and to meet Him. You see, it's significant here that as Jesus knows the cross to be looming so closely, and as he feels himself quickly approaching the city of Jerusalem, he turns to his 12 disciples and says in verse 31 that we are now about to go up to Jerusalem. And naturally, with our modern eyes, whenever we see this said, going up to Jerusalem, we, we tend to assume that up is primarily referring to north. We say, I'm going up to Sacramento. I'm going up to Lake Tahoe. I'm going down to Los Angeles. But all throughout the Bible, especially in reference to Jerusalem, going up to the city is not an indicator of cardinal direction, but of elevation, of altitude. Up as in literally up, not up as in north. I actually have no idea where north is. My sense of direction is horrible. But you see, going up to the city means to climb up, to go up, ascend, because Jerusalem was a city built on a hilltop, on Mount Zion. You know, we, I think as Christians, we say, oh, Zion this, Zion that, because it's like the cool, poetic Christian thing to say, and rarely do we uh, stop to wonder what, why we call it Zion. It's because Zion is a name of a mountain upon which Jerusalem was built. Zion is, is the mountain that King David founded and established upon it, the, the city of Jerusalem, by taking it from the Jebusites in 2 Samuel chapter 5. And that's why the term Zion is used synonymously for Jerusalem, because Jerusalem was effectively a mountain city built on top of that hill on Mount Zion. And so, again, whenever anyone would talk about making a trip to Jerusalem, if they were from out of town, they would always say, I'm going up to Jerusalem. I'm ascending up the hill to get to that city. Now, he might say, well, that's nice. Thank you for the geography and topography lesson that I never asked for. Uh, What's the big deal? Why is this important? Well, we have to understand something about mountains throughout the Bible. They're not just part of the uh, landscape in the background. But mountains are crucial elements in redemptive history because the pattern of how God chose to work from the beginning of creation was to use mountains as the place, the stage, if you will, where he would reveal himself to man and manifest his presence on earth. In other words, throughout scripture, mountains are the appointed meeting place between God and and man. Why? Well, because in a real practical sense, visually, from man's perspective, mountains are the highest points of earth. They are closest to touching heaven, 
as it were, as though they were representatively the point of intersection between heaven and earth. And so as an elevated high point, they they serve as the symbolically appropriate meeting place where the transcendent God of heaven would descend and reveal himself to his people and fellowship with them in love. And this pattern was established even from creation. And I'm sure that we all know that when God created the world and created man, he placed Adam and Eve inside the garden of Eden, which was not just a nice resort, but it was paradise because it was in the immediate presence of God on earth. Again, this tells us that there's no joy or life outside of his presence. And you wonder why the world is falling apart more and more as, as time goes by. It's because as time goes by, the world collectively moves further and further away from the things of God, even the common grace of his basic moral law. There is no joy, there is no life, there is no peace outside of God's presence. That's what made the Garden of Eden what it was. Now, I think when we hear the word Garden of Eden, we probably visualize in our minds a picture of a very lush meadow or even some mystical forest down on plain level ground. But if you look very carefully at how Eden is described in Genesis chapter 2, it says in verse 10 that a river flowed out from Eden through the garden, and then it split into four riverheads that flowed to all the earth, the, the four corners of the earth in a metaphorical sense, presumably speaking. Now this tells us something. Because rivers, by definition, flow downstream from high areas to low areas through gravity. Which means then that the Garden of Eden was on top of a mountain. It was a mountain garden. And Ezekiel chapter 28 verse uh, verse 14 says this explicitly. Where the Garden of Eden is called the Holy Mountain of God. You see, from the beginning, God worked in this pattern of choosing mountains as the stage of revealing himself, displaying his glory, and manifesting his presence to mankind. And again, it wasn't just a show that God was putting on for man to merely spectate, but rather on these mountains of revelation, the great joy was that God and man might meet together there in unhindered fellowship. And that's what made the Garden of Eden the paradise that it was. Man enjoying perfect fellowship with his God and his maker. And this pattern would actually continue. It would continue by God's grace even after the fall. Even after men sinned against God and were rightfully exiled out of his holy mountain. But in God's great mercy and love throughout redemptive history. God would continue to intervene and descend down to this fallen world. And invite sinful men up to his appointed mountaintop meeting places. Or he would reveal his gracious presence to them. That's why we see in Exodus chapter 19. That after Israel was released from bondage to the Egyptians. God's holy presence descended on Mount Sinai. In this ravaging fire and smoke and lightning engulfing the whole mountain. And it was on that mountain that God revealed his law. And entered into a covenant relationship with Israel. Now of course as we've already mentioned about 400 years after Sinai, God established his holy city of Jerusalem 
nowhere else but on Mount Zion, his appointed mountain, his holy mountain through King David. And the purpose was not just to have a strategic military location, being on high ground, though there was that too, but that through David's son, Solomon, God would build his temple on that mount where his glory would enter the temple and so dwell with his people. So the point is this, that God reveals himself to the world in many ways through, through creation, as general revelation that you see, you look out into the world and you see the stars, the trees, the birds, and you know there must be a creator. This cannot be an accident. That's foolishness. God reveals himself to the world through, through common grace, that the rain that he sends upon those who are both wicked and good to show his character, to show his kindness. And God even reveals himself to the world through the conscience by which he testifies to the reality of sin and righteousness in the very heart and mind of man. It was C.S. Lewis who said that you, you cannot know what is a crooked line unless you know what is a straight line. Through the conscience, God testifies to the truth of who he is and the reality of his holy character. Yet even so, Though God revealed himself in so many different ways throughout redemptive history, it was at the mountaintop where God's people would witness the most intimate revelation of his glory. To be given a window into the depths of his heart and mind. In other words, mountains were the designated places where man would not just learn and know something about God, but where man could really come to know God, to behold Him in this intimate relationship. Again, which is exactly what Moses and Aaron and the elders of Israel did on Mount Sinai. And God called them to come up to the mountain in Exodus 24, 11. It says, they beheld God and ate and drank. They enjoyed a meal of fellowship in His presence. This is what happens on these mountains of revelation where God makes himself known to man. But as awesome and as glorious as all all these mountaintop experiences were, it's here that we see a better word, a still clearer revelation in Jesus going up to Jerusalem where on this mountain, Everything written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be fulfilled. That he will be betrayed by evil men for 30 pieces of silver, Zechariah 11. That he will be hated without cause and suffer for sins he never committed, Psalm 69. That he will be forsaken by God, scorned by mankind and despised by people, Psalm 22. And that he will be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. That he would suffer unto death for the sins of his people. Yet his days would be prolonged. And that death will not be the final word, Isaiah 53. As he conquers death for his people. All of this, church, is God's clearest self-explanation of himself. His suffering and death on the cross, God incarnate. That is the fullest revelation of his glory. The cross is how he wants us to know him as the God of overflowing love for sinners, that he would save them by crushing his son, 
on their behalf. So all that the prophets had revealed about God, about his purpose, his will, his character, his work, all throughout the Old Testament, everything written in it, here on the cross is the culmination of divine revelation in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And we actually see even this foretold by the prophets in the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 2, the prophet says in verse 2, that it shall come to pass in the latter days, which is the age of the Messiah's arrival. The latter days is not necessarily the absolute end times, a few days left, but it's the whole epoch of Christ having come. We've been in the last days, as Hebrews chapter 1 makes very clearly, that long ago in olden times, God revealed himself, God spoke through his prophets in many ways to our fathers. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And so Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2 says, It shall come to pass in the latter days, that upon the coming of the Christ, that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established, here now, as the highest of the mountains. And it will be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. Through many high mountains, God showed glimmers of his glory throughout history. But Isaiah foresaw a day when God would establish the highest of all revelatory mountains, the the pinnacle of revealing his glory, and that he would do it in Jerusalem at the cross. Because there God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, isn't it remarkable that this ultimate mountaintop, the peak of God's glory revealed, was not even the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember back in chapter 9, Jesus took Peter, James, and John up a high mountain to pray. And there on that mountain, as Jesus was praying, the veil of his human flesh was temporarily unveiled, and his true divine glory as the eternal Son shone through. And it says that the appearance of his face was altered and his clothes became blindingly white. And those who were with him saw his glory. They saw a glimpse of the Holy One, the sovereign God of transcendent majesty, the one before whom the seraphim must cover their eyes as they worship him day and night because he is still too holy for these highest rank heavenly beings. Peter, James, and John were eyewitnesses of the unveiled glory of God incarnate. You would think that there could be no higher summit of divine revelation, beholding his transcendence, beholding his loftiness, beholding his otherness. This for sure must be the highest of them all. The sight of glory in the highest. And yet according to the prophet Isaiah, there was still a higher mountain. Because this mountain of transfiguration, it wasn't on Jerusalem. It took place on an unnamed mountain, which tradition tells us was somewhere in Galilee. But the Mount of Transfiguration, even that was not the summit. Because the glory of God was even more fully revealed from the Mount of Jerusalem. When that glory in the highest willingly subjected himself to disgrace of the lowest for the sake of disgraceful sinners like you and me. 
as the Son of Man was betrayed, delivered into the, into the hands of wicked men. And just as he foretold to the twelve, he would go up to Jerusalem like a lamb led to the slaughter. And he, the Lord of glory, would allow himself to be mocked, to be beaten, to be spit upon. Can you imagine that? Imagine Christ in all of his glory being spit upon and altogether shamefully treated because he was taking on the shame and reproach of sinners like you and me. Here is God's glory on fullest display. The great love of Christ for sinners whose love for us was so holy and inconceivably otherworldly that even during his incarnation, when he was transfigured on that mountain and he got a taste of his eternal unveiled glory, which was rightfully his, which he had shared and enjoyed in the presence of his father with the father for all eternity, before the world even existed, that even so, I love this about the transfiguration, that even so, there on that mountain, he considered sinners before himself. And he recommitted himself to put on the veil of humiliation once again and come down from that mountain and continue his ministry to the end goal of reaching Jerusalem because only in those garments of human flesh could he go to the cross and taste death for them. You see, it is on the mountain of Jerusalem where we behold Christ suffering on the cross for our sins, that is where we come to know and to understand God for who He truly is. And how deep the Father's love for us. And how vast beyond all measure that He should give His only Son to make wretches like us His treasure. You know, I think sometimes as Christians, as we desire to worship God better and exalt His name higher, we can find ourselves concentrating heavily on how transcendent He is, how lofty He is, how unapproachably majestic He is. And yes, that's all true. He, he is so lofty and transcendent beyond our comprehension. He dwells in unapproachable light, 1 Timothy 6 says. But I think sometimes as we concentrate exclusively on those things, we can end up unwittingly distancing ourselves from God and just find ourselves in a position of revering Him from afar. And it's because we lose sight of the cross. But church... God has concentrated his self-revelation on the cross. And what the cross shows us is that God wills and desires to be known and to be worshipped as Emmanuel. God, holy, transcendent, other, and yet that very God with us. That we might be amazed by the love of this transcendent God who has come to draw near to us. That the lofty, unapproachable, most high came down, most low, 
to the lowest point of shame and humiliation that he might meet us where we are at the rock bottom of our sin and shame. It is when we behold the glory of Emmanuel, the God who draws near to us, that our souls are stirred with true worship because we see him fully and rightly, not just as one whom we are to venerate from a distance, but that through Christ we might adore him and delight in the nearness of his presence. Christian, do you see God rightly? Have you been seeing him rightly and fully as he wants you to see him? Do do you look upon him through the lens of Calvary and see the glory of his love for you? Or have you been trying to glorify him in your life well-intended, yet apart from resting your soul at the foot of the cross in what Christ has done for you in such great love. We see here how Jesus foretold his death for the final time, just a couple weeks away from heading to the cross. And I think we some, sometimes we subconsciously assume that Jesus gave these prophetic predictions about his suffering in almost a calculated manner, as if he were just giving a weather forecast. Because he's God. I mean, this is the plan. He knows what's going to happen. He's going to execute it. He's not fazed by it. No, no, no. That's denying his true humanity. Because as a true human being, walking into his own murder and the dark abyss of condemnation, imagine how Jesus must have said these words actually with awful dread and sorrow. You think knowing what's going to happen changes anything? You know, my wife was just telling me this past week of a story she heard of a Christian couple who they welcomed a precious little baby. I think it was a girl. But upon her birth, it was discovered that the baby had a rare genetic disorder such that it was impossible for that baby to live past one year. Meaning at any point over the next several months, that baby would suddenly die. And so this couple uh, welcomed the baby, but with, with grief and sorrow, and yet trying to savor every moment with this child to care of the little baby raise this baby, love the child, love the little girl, knowing that any day they would find her in the crib, not breathing anymore. And that's exactly what happened. Some several months later, as the husband went, the father, he, he went to the crib to check on her, she was gone. And what struck me was what the wife had shared that even to her own surprise, even though she knew that day was coming, when that day came, having known it already didn't soften the blow at all. But the full weight of grief and sorrow came upon her. Knowing what's going to happen doesn't change anything. 
It's not the foreknowledge of it that is the weight of the, the, the burden, but it's the reality of it. The, the thing that, that will happen itself. And so with Jesus, yes, he knew it was going to happen. Yet even so, perhaps even more so, as he took each step like a lamb led to the slaughter. Imagine how much his heart must have been grieved and filled with real human dread. I mean, this little conversation took place as he came to the familiar road near Jericho, which he, is, he probably took many times growing up. And as he saw that scenery, he knew that Jerusalem was just a few stops away. I mean, again, think of how very, in a real sense, his human heart must have sunk within that moment. Because he dreaded the horror of having to endure the judgment of God at the cross. The anger and wrath of his father meant for guilty sinners. Jesus, in a truly human way, he shuddered at the thought. He was trembling. Hence, in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see Jesus in the genuineness of his human nature, pleading with the father if there was any other way. Listen, he really meant it. Because he really felt it. Nevertheless, in his great love for sinners, and in his great faithfulness to the will of God, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and suffered the agony of the judgment meant for you and me, Christian. Think of what love must have compelled him to do such a thing. Christian, have you been trying to love God apart from resting in his love for you? And have you been weary because of it? Has the cross faded into the background in these recent days? It must take center stage, beloved, because it is the center stage of God's glory. Only at the foot of the cross can we glorify Him, because there we behold His true and full glory, and we say, My Jesus, I love Thee, because Thou hast first loved me. I love thee for wearing the thorns on thy brow. If ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now, as I sit at the foot of the cross and behold your wondrous love for me. And it is a wondrous love indeed. It's bewildering. It's inconceivable. And it's for this reason that when Jesus told his disciples plainly and explicitly about his imminent suffering, death, and resurrection, they couldn't understand any of it. Verse 34, it says, And this doesn't mean that they suddenly lost their linguistic faculties and couldn't speak in the language anymore. They heard Jesus loud and clear. They they comprehended the vocabulary. They just couldn't believe it. Why? Well, in one sense, it was their own unbelief because they had preconceived notions about what kind of Messiah Jesus should be. And they couldn't fathom how he'd conquer anything by dying. You usually conquer by killing crushing your opponents, not being crushed. And so on the one hand, they were responsible for their own lack of understanding. And yet at the same time, on the other hand, there's a sense in which it was truly too incomprehensible for them to understand, for anyone to understand, until it was all finished and Jesus rose from the dead. And then they could see with illumined eyes in hindsight 
what Jesus had said and what Jesus had done for them. Because it was too glorious for the mere natural mind to receive. I mean, even the angels didn't understand everything. Do you know that? Because the gospel of God's salvation is a matter, things into which angels long to look, 1 Peter 1.12. Even they marveled at the wisdom of God's plan. Even they're astonished by how God sovereignly used what, what wicked men meant for evil in crucifying His Son to bring about the good news, the gospel of salvation for sinners. The angels didn't understand either. In fact, even the devil didn't fully understand what was going on. Because if he had known, he wouldn't have incited evil men to crucify the Lord of glory, 1 Corinthians 2.8, and thus bring about his own defeat. You see, in this respect, the disciples' ignorance is partly understandable because this was too glorious a revelation to fathom, too awesome and wonderful to comprehend with foresight. And yet it's for this very reason that we praise him. In the spirit of saying, who is like the Lord, our God? What God is this who comes to lay down his life for sinners? What other God is there who so genuinely loved his enemies that he gave all of himself for them? Who has known the counsel of the Lord? Who can compare to his matchless wisdom in showcasing his infinite glory by subjecting himself to utmost humiliation and disgrace for the sake of those he came to save. There is no one like him. And this is why we love him. This is the glory of God revealed on the highest of mountains at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Church, the Christian life must be lived daily under the shadow of the cross there is where you must go to worship. There is where you must receive His grace. There is our meeting place with God, where we fellowship with Him on the basis of His great love toward us in Christ. Do you sometimes feel unworthy or too weighed down by your sin? Well, all the more reason to come, sit beneath the cross and meet with God there. Trusting in His finished work. That's the only place you must think to go. Straight to the presence of Christ. And it's just like in Exodus. When God gave detailed instructions to Moses in building the tabernacle. In Exodus chapter 25, God said there in those instructions to build a mercy seat. Which is literally a lid that was on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And it's on this mercy seat, this lid, that on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would sprinkle the blood of the sacrificed animal for the atonement of Israel's sins. It was the lid of atonement, or you could say the lid of propitiation. But do you remember what God said to Moses in those instructions to build it in Exodus 25? As he was talking about the mercy seat, God said to Moses, there I will meet with you, right above the mercy seat. There was the meeting place. There was the worship center. The place where God provided 
atonement for the sins of his people. And that mercy seat on the ark was only a shadow that prefigured the ultimate mercy seat of the cross, where the blood of the Lamb of God was sprinkled to atone for all your sin, Christian. Jesus Christ is the propitiation for our sin, 1 John 2, 2. Literally, John is saying that Jesus is the mercy seat for our sins. Do you feel like a wretch sometimes? Meet him at the cross. There I will meet with you, God says. There I will always be pleased to meet with you at the mercy seat where Christ shed his blood for you. There is the table of unhindered fellowship together for all of your days. If you're here this morning and you have not been saved by Jesus Christ and trusted in what he has accomplished on the cross, you must look at the cross and see there at the cross the great love of God for sinners. Non-Christian, you deserve to be the one on the cross, being stricken and smitten by God in the affliction of his righteous judgment. But see how he came to take the place of sinners that he came to save. And on the cross, he took every ounce of judgment and wrath. Come to the cross. Meet your maker there. Confess that you are a sinner before him. And put your trust in the glory and sufficiency of Christ crucified for you. And you will be forgiven of all sin. Cleansed by his atoning blood. And you can come to know God, your Father, as Father, through the cross of Jesus Christ and receive by faith that infinite love poured out to all who come to Him. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for the infinite and matchless wisdom, the unfathomable glory that you are who is like you who has done such a thing who is so pleased to crush your son for sinners like us we thank you for revealing yourself to us in this way and we thank you that this is who you truly are the God of grace and mercy abounding in steadfast love for us and we remember even the words of the prophet Isaiah where elsewhere he said that on the mountain on this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food and truly we see that it's on the cross that Jesus Christ gave his own body and blood that he might give it to us that we might feed on him and have life, the bread of life. And so as we now prepare to take the Lord's Supper, Father, we ask that you would use these ordinary elements of the bread and the cup to reaffirm for us the precious truth of the gospel and that you would help us to come and sit at the foot of the cross and receive the great love of Jesus Christ for us. We ask this in his name. Amen.